0: If you brought a Bible, open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. On Sunday mornings at our church, we're going through the book of Thessalonians. And it's really a book all about being ready for Christ's soon return. And uh, the Apostle Paul is laying out all these opportunities that they have to be ready for when Jesus comes. And he kind of goes over a lot of things. He talks about being ready to be an example. He talks about being ready to care for those who are hurting He talks about being ready to love. He talks about being ready to fight, ready to grow, ready to have hope. And and he even talks about being ready to suffer for Jesus' sake. And so as he's laying out all these things, I want you to note that, that the things he's saying are not, you just kick back and do nothing. These are active things. These are things that you're to be involved in as we await the return of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not just to be sitting around with our heads up in the clouds waiting for Jesus. We're to be actively doing something as we await the return of Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like to kind of share with you guys this morning is something else that we can only do now before Jesus comes, and it's something that we're to be doing as we await his return. And that is that you and I have the opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I know that's a very popular topic, but let me tell you, it's not just about what we say, it's about how we live. And that's what I want to emphasize with you. You see, God intends this new life that he's given us in Christ to be lived out, for all the world to be able to see our faith demonstrated in the way we conduct ourselves in the world. And that we are to be a witness of Jesus, again, not by what we say only, which we could do a lot better job of that, but most importantly, by the lifestyle that we live. We put a lot of emphasis on the speaking, but we need to put a little more emphasis on the living out the character of a Christian. It's equally important that our actions speak louder than our words. In fact, I want you to notice what Paul says right here. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 12. He says that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Notice he doesn't say that you may talk properly but that you may walk properly. And to who? To those who are on the outside. What does he mean by those on the outside? Those outside the family of God. Those outside the kingdom of God. That's how the Bible views unchurched, unbelieving people. They're outside. We're on the inside. We gave our lives to Christ. We were put into the body of Christ, but there's still people on the outside. Our goal is to get them from being on the outside to being on the inside with us, right? And that's the purpose that we're to be a witness for Christ. We want to bring them in. And of course, our lifestyle can either push people away or it can bring them in. And I want to encourage you today to do, uh, live a lifestyle that would draw people in to become followers of Jesus Himself. So I titled the message this morning, An Opportunity to Be a Witness, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 9. Let's read together what the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we command you, and that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you give us clear instruction on what it looks like to be a witness Of the follower of Jesus. And I pray today that we would leave here with ammunition in our lives, Lord, ready to go out and live in such a way, not only talk in such a way, but live in such a way that we give good testimony of being a follower of Jesus Christ, that others might be drawn into your kingdom as a result, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed that we live in a society today that is inundated? with advertising it's all around us right it's on buses and billboards it's in the mail it's on milk cartons there's advertising all around us in every way even in our computers you go on and there's banners and there's spam and there's pop-ups I don't know has anybody ever here like clicked on it actually bought something on a pop-up I mean that's ridiculous I did it once that's why I know it's ridiculous but but here's the reality advertising is all around us now I can appreciate a really good commercial I mean you can too right I mean a lot of people watch the Super Bowl just because they want to see the commercials. I I go to an annual Super Bowl party every year and literally three-quarters of the people there have no concern of what's going on in the game. They just wait till the commercials come on and they all rally around the TV, right? Because they like the commercials. Now, my favorite commercial in all time was one of these Got Milk commercials. You know, it's the one where the guy is walking across the street and a bus comes and hits him. And then he wakes up in this white room and there's the table laid out with all these chocolate treats you know chocolate cakes muffins cupcakes and he sees that he goes what is this place and then he goes over to the refrigerator the only one in the room and he opens it up and it's full of milk cartons he's thinking this is heaven right so he starts gorging on all these chocolatey snacks and they're all over his face and then he meanders over to the refrigerator to get out a carton of milk and when he grabs it it's empty right and he throws it down he grabs the next one; it's empty and he goes when they're all empty and he goes where am i and all of a sudden got milk comes up and it's in flames he's in hell is where he is I mean that's a great commercial. Well, I'm sure you notice that we have something even more common today. It's called the infomercial, right? It's not just a 30 or 60 second commercial we used to. It's like a 30 to 60 minute commercial comes right on right during one of your favorite shows. All of a sudden, they're talking about the Brazilian butt lift, or they're talking about you know the T28, or or uh, you know the ab this and the ab that. And there's all these different infomercials that come on. And you know what's amazing about that? I wonder do people actually you know, buy stuff, and the reality is they are extremely effective. Why are they effective? Because they give testimony of the difference that those products can make in the life of people. So they show you the befores, they show you the afters, they give you the doctor's recommendation, and and we watch this and we are convinced because there's a testimony attached to it. In fact, one internet marketing firm concluded that infomercials work by building, quote, a comprehensive and convincing case for purchase. The goal is to give viewers all the information they need to make a purchasing decision. They explain every benefit, answer all the objections, and then do it again and again. Infomercials are not for every product or service. However, for the right product, they're the most powerful form of advertising in the world. In other words, they give us what we're all looking for. They give us evidence. They give us a compelling case For purchase. We look at the screen and we go, you know, if it's working for them, maybe it'll work for me. If it's working for them, maybe the ease, the life, the change I desire can be a reality if I just spend my money and I buy that product. Listen, in many ways, you and I are called as followers of Christ to be infomercials for Jesus. We're to be examples of the difference Jesus can make in the life of a person so that other people are looking at our life And they're able to see the reality of Jesus' existence. You see, the moment that we give our lives to Christ and claim to be a Christian, our life is suddenly on display. And everybody's able to look at it. And when we say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, we make a profession of faith. That's an invitation to others to say, look at my life. Now that I'm claiming to be a follower of Jesus and see how I live and see the difference that Jesus can make in our lives. You see, we're all called to be his witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you probably know it well. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The reason that we didn't go to heaven the moment we believed is Jesus left us here to be infomercials for him, right? The reason he gave us the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us is that we would be his witnesses, that we would be an epistle, a living letter for people to read. The Bible says, read and known by all men. We've been put on earth to be a witness for Jesus Christ and to show the difference that he can make in the life of somebody who believes. In fact, the Greek word for witness is the word martyr. That means somebody that's willing to testify even when it costs them something to die, right? The regular word for witness is somebody that sees something, experiences something, and then testifies of that to other people. Well, a Christian is a witness or a martyr in the Greek language. That means that you're willing to share that reality no matter what it costs you. In other words, sometimes it might be very costly. It might cost you something to be able to testify of Jesus. And it's important to say it's not just in the things we say, which most people, when I said let's be a witness or we're, we're called to be a witness, you think I'm talking about preaching the gospel. But what I'm saying here is more about living the gospel. A testimony is the way Jesus changed your life. And that testimony needs to be seen, not only heard, right? Sir Henry Stanley was a man who accompanied the great uh, missionary named David Livingston. And David Livingston was given a compliment by Sir Henry Stanley when he said this. He said, I'd been with, with David Livingston, if I had been with David Livingston any longer, he would have compelled me to be a Christian. And yet in the time I was with him, he never spoke one word about it at all. In other words, he never said a word. But just by watching him, I was almost compelled to be a Christian. It's kind of like the story of Billy Graham who went out golfing one day and some heathen congressman got paired up with Billy Graham on this golf day and they were out golfing all day and by the end of the day, the congressman was just beside himself in frustration and he went out to, to a meal afterwards with another congressman. He said, you know, I can't believe that Billy Graham, you know, stuffing his religion down my throat and all like he did. And the man goes, really, what did Billy Graham say to you? Nothing. He didn't say anything to me. It was just the way he lived himself out on the golf course. You see, that's the way we're to be. Your lifestyle and your conduct is to be a witness of what you believe, of what Jesus has done in your life, and people are watching. Your kids are watching. Your neighbors are watching. Your family members are watching. You're going to be around them during the holidays. They're watching. They're going to see what difference does Jesus Christ make in your life. Is it all just words, or is there a lifestyle to go along with it? Proverbs 25, 26 says, A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring or a polluted well. In other words, you can't see clearly when somebody who claims to be a follower of Christ and yet stumbles and lives an unrighteous conduct before people, it becomes a murky, polluted well. It's like the pious church member who thought himself to be such a great Christian example was brought before the junior high school class At Sunday school and the superintendent said I want you to say a few words to these young men and women about the importance of being a good example and so he stood up before them all very pompously and piously and he said to them why do you think people call me a Christian and there was a dead silence in the classroom and all the kids just stared at him so he said it again why do you think people call me a Christian and there was an embarrassing silence and finally some little kid stood up at the back said is it because they don't know you is that why they think you're a Christian and the reality is that's too often the way it is. We can be a great Christian as long as people don't really know what we're like. Let's be honest. We, we, we owe the world an apology. I mean, do we not? For not truly living out the faith that we testify to believe. Don't we owe the Lord an apology for not speaking forth the wonderful works of what he's done in our lives and giving him praise for that? Do we not owe one another an apology for not boldly standing up and testifying of Christ and living a lifestyle that exemplifies what a true follower of Jesus should live like? We do. We owe an apology to the world. And this being a witness is important, and that's why Paul addresses it here to the Thessalonians. He always had a kind of a missionary appeal, Paul. Whenever he wrote, he said, you know, I want you to live in such a way that those people on the outside, they can see the difference Jesus makes. Colossians chapter four, Paul writes to them and says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. So he's saying, I want you to have a good witness to the outside people. First Timothy chapter three, verse seven, speaking to spiritual leaders, Paul says, moreover, it's, it must, a, a spiritual leader must have a good testimony to those who are on the outside. So in other words, a spiritual leader should be an example of how they live their life. And certainly this isn't just spiritual leaders, it's all of us. And that's why he says here in verse 12 that you might walk properly towards those who are on the outside that you may lack nothing. So Paul's going to tell them, well, what does that look like then to walk properly towards those unbelievers? How, how, do we, how are we a good witness by our lifestyle? What kind of character and conduct should we have that exemplifies a true follower of Christ. And that's what Paul gives us here in verse 9 through 12. Now, verse 9 and 10, he talks about love, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But look at verse 11. He says that you also aspire to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we command you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside. He lists four things in these verses that we are to do to be an example of the difference Jesus can make but let me just say this before I give them to you is the issue in the church of Thessalonica was that they had this misunderstanding and confusion about the return of Jesus Christ and so they some of them thought Jesus was going to come or was already come some even thought and so it caused a lot of them to do some crazy things like quit their job charge up their credit card stop paying their bills and they were like waiting around for Jesus to come. And they weren't working. They were idle. They were lazy. They got involved in each other's business. And so Paul says, no, that's a poor testimony to the world out there. You're not doing it right. And that's why he writes these things to them. Because they were they had this severe misunderstanding. It's kind of like... If you remember back in the 80s, somebody wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Going to Return in 1988, and then another one came out in 1999 and said 99 Reasons Why Jesus Is Going to Come Back in 1999. Um, You guys all know that those books were false, right? Because Jesus didn't come back. But when those books came out, people literally quit their jobs, charged up their credit cards, and then stop paying their bills so that any time Jesus was going to come. And that's, in essence, what was happening. And so they began to actually mooch off other Christians and take advantage of one another. And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians all about when Jesus was going to come, how it was going to be like a thief in the night, but the rapture would happen. And, and that's why he lays it all out to get them back on track. And in the midst of that, he says, and by the way, here's how you can live your life in front of the outsider's so that you can draw them in. And he gives us four things that I want to consider with you. Number one, in order for us to walk properly to those who are outside, we need to love abundantly. That's what he says. Look at verse 9 again. He says, But concerning brotherly love, that's love between brothers, you and I, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In other words, the Thessalonians were already loving one another in a very tangible way. Verse 10, and indeed you do so towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So you guys are doing a great job. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, need to love one another abundantly. That becomes something that you and I are to do towards those who are outside. Now we know that love is, is a earmark of a follower of Jesus Christ, right? No question. Jesus put it in these words. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you should love one another, even as I have loved you, right? He says, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have what? Love one for another. So love becomes the testimony, the earmark of a follower of Jesus Christ. People should be able to look at your life, and they should be able to see love towards others brothers and sisters. In fact, the greatest witness and testimony that you could give to an un- outsider, an unbeliever, is that you would tangibly love other Christians in front of them, or as an example. Uh, it must be love that is seen. In other words, you can't really say, well, I love somebody unless there's actions behind it. And I think that's the problem, is we think, oh, well, I love everybody. You know, I have this love in my heart for all the brothers and sisters in my church here today. But the reality is that love can't be seen if it's just an emotion it has to be seen in your actions right that's why jesus said greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends so in other words the only way that love can be seen so that others are witnessed to by it is it must be a very tangible and and sacrificial kind of love so we need to ask ourselves as we look around the room today who could you say today that my love towards my brothers and sisters in our church is very tangible And it's very sacrificial and it's very practical. Or is it just an emotion? Well, I love everybody. You see, the point that Paul's making here is if we want to be somebody that has a good walk to those on the outside, love needs to be something that is tangible and visible and sacrificial. We need to be willing to give the interest of others over ourselves. If all we ever think about is ourselves and our needs and what I want and what I desire and we put no thought to the other, then we're not loving in a tangible way. We're actually being selfish, right? You see, the love we're to have is to be tangible. C.S. Lewis once pointed out that we talk so much about loving people in general that we literally love no one in particular. In other words, there's nothing tangible and practical about my love. If I was to ask you this morning, how loving are you towards other believers here at Reliance Church. What would you be able to point to and say, you know well, how I'm loving is this is what I've done for others. This is what I've given to others. Or could you just say, well, I just have this warm, fuzzy feeling inside and that's how I know I love them. No, no, it's got to be tangible. It's got to be practical. People got to be able to see that. You know, it's, it's in the church that we are called to love and sometimes it's in the church that love becomes the most challenging you know, we're with each other. We, we let our hair down around one another, and next thing you know, we offend each other, and, and then we don't want to reconcile, and so we start having, you know, issues, and, and then there's resentment and bitterness that builds up, and then anything, from, anything but love takes place. When God has called us as the church to love one another in a tangible way, which means that if we don't love each other in the church, then how do we expect to love other people outside the church? You see, it's in here we've all been given the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit's been poured in our hearts and the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we have love because God's Spirit dwells in us. And so if we can't love each other here, we're never going to be able to love each other out there. In fact, this is where you learn to love. You know, People get mad. Oh, that person offended me. I'm going to leave that church. I'm going to go to some other church. And what they do is they don't learn how to love. They learn how to be bitter and resentful and run from their loving when they're commanded to love. See, we're in the church. We love each other. That becomes the place to practice true love. In fact, one pastor put it this way. I like to think of the church as the laboratory of Christian growth. It's in our relationships with each other where we learn how to love. It starts right here in this setting. And so we're to love each other. Now, notice Paul says here, though, it isn't just to love because the Thessalonians were pretty loving with one another. Notice he says at the end of verse 10, he says, but to do it, more and more and more. You see, we get content. Oh, I'm a pretty loving guy. You know, I just did that great thing. I just helped somebody with their car when it was broken down on the freeway. Somebody from the church, or I helped them move last weekend. So I'm pretty loving. He's saying, yeah, that's great, but do it more and more. In other words, it should be an increasing love towards one another. In fact, look with me back at chapter three, verse 12, what he says. He says that you may, that you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. in other words, he's saying that increase, that you would do it more and more, and then abound means overflowing. So he's saying here, you as a Christian should love, and it shouldn't just be a moment of love. It shouldn't be a static love. It should be a growing, abounding, increasing love to one another. And that's going to be seen in the good works that you do towards each other. I mean, we're still sinful people, right? We're still not perfected. We still have a lot of loving to do. You can never love too much, and there's never, you know, you can never carry it to an excess. You've got to love and keep loving and growing in love. Paul's saying here is that we shouldn't just love others, but that we should be becoming a loving person more and more and more in our lives. You know, we often take that scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, love. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't think, seek its own. You know, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Think, oh, that's great. And we put ourselves in there, okay, and I loving like that? And Paul's saying, that's good if you love like that. Now do it more and do it more and do it more. That's the picture he's drawing for us here. It's an increasing, abounding love that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, how can we ever do that, Pastor? It ain't going to happen in your own strength. It's only going to happen by the Holy Spirit being poured out in your heart. So we need to draw closer to God. We need to draw closer to him. We need to get down on our faces before God and ask God to give us this love for one another. And listen, this is the love that attracts unbelievers to Christ. When they see us loving each other, all the world will know that we're his disciples and it, it melts people. They, they just can't handle it. You see, the world out there is looking for real love and when they walk in the doors of a church and they see us bickering and gossiping and complaining, they just turn around and they go out and they say, that's not for me. But when they come in the church and they see people genuinely, tangibly, practically loving each other, what an attraction that is. It just melts their hearts. That's what they're looking for. In fact, George Barna recently wrote a book a while back on unchurched people. He said, he said that research shows that when the unchurched are asked, what are you looking for in a church? The answer is always the same. They're looking for a caring church, not just a friendly church or a relevant church with plenty of programs for the kids and not a church where the Bible is clearly taught only, as good and essential as all those things are, they don't touch the deepest heart cry of this generation which for, which is for a place where they can be loved truly and deeply. When the people of the world find such a place, they will stand in line just to get in. See, that's why it's so important that we love each other. And when we, you and I are around groups of believers or at work with unbelievers or with our family over the holidays and we're bickering and we're complaining and we're gossiping and we're putting other Christians down, do you really think that's going to draw these people closer to Christ? No. It's going to turn them away. No, in order for us to live properly towards those on the outside, we need to love one another abundantly. But he goes on, and he gives them a second thing we need to do, and that's number two, we also need to live quietly. Look what he says there in verse 11, that you aspire. That word aspire means to be zealous for, be zealous to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. In other words, it means to live a simple, peaceful life not one that is filled with anxiety, busyness, and chaos. The word for quiet life is the, is the Greek word hesuchos, if that's how you pronounce it, and it means to be still or silent, to be in tranquility or peace. It speaks of having a calm, restful life. Thayer, in his word studies of Greek words, says this, it's not running hither and thither, but staying home and minding their own business. I think some of your lives are described by that. You're running hither and thither, right? You're all over the place. He's saying, no, no, it's talking about living a restful, peaceful life where it serves as a witness of the transforming power of the gospel. Eugene Peterson in his book or his, his translation of the Bible called The Message translates the word quiet life to staying calm. It speaks of a less fanatic, frantic, and more settled life being void always of restless excuse me, being void of always being restless for something better in your life. You see you see the problem is, is we're all pursuing more and better. We want to get more stuff and more success and and more achievements. And so we pursue these things like a rat or a mouse running on a wheel, and we busy ourselves to death, we get to the point where we're living in anxiety and we're living in busyness. In Ecclesiastes 4, 6 says, one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving. It's better to have a little and have rest than to have a lot and be overcome with anxiety. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul urges us to pray. He says, pray for kings and those who are in authority that we may lead, listen, a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. He's saying we should pray to live a tranquil life, a, a restful life. Jay Vernon McGee commenting on this particular phrase says that we should study to be quiet. We have all kinds of schools today to teach us how to do public speaking or to teach us to speak, but maybe we should have a class to teach us how to be quiet, right? Because everybody's always talking. Everybody's always got something to say. We need to be quiet. Lady went to a meeting one time. It was called a tongues meeting, and the pastor thought she was interested in speaking in tongues, so he asked her, ma'am, would you like to speak in tongues? She said, no. Pastor, I'd like to lose about 40 feet off the tongue I have right now because I just can't keep quiet. Or a lady one time, she was known for her critical and demeaning attitudes and complaining and she was sitting in the front row one day when John Wesley was preaching and he had this horrendous tie on and she just couldn't bear with it. So this tie is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. He's tied it too long and as soon as the sermon was over, she beelined it right up to the pulpit and said, Pastor, I got to tell you, that tie is horrendous. I can't believe you wore that tie. And she just went on and on and complained. And he said, all right, ma'am, all right. Get me a pair of scissors. So somebody brought a pair of scissors and says, go ahead, cut off the tie. So she cuts off the tie. And then he goes, give me the scissors. Now stick out your tongue. I'm going to teach you something, right? What Paul is saying here is as we await the return of Jesus Christ, we need to study to be quiet. We need to study and live a quiet, simple, restful life. And instead we strive for things. We're pursuing so much. We need to live a a more peaceful life. And listen, there's nothing wrong with having nothing to do. You know, sometimes we feel guilty doing nothing, like to lay around one day, have one day a week just to relax and do nothing. Like that's like the greatest crime in the book. If you're not always busy, always doing something, then something's wrong. And what happens is the urgency of the precedent, excuse me, the the, the urgent takes precedent over the important and we begin to neglect what's most valuable because we're so busy, we have no time to just relax. And you and I need a Sabbath. We need a day to just take off, relax, and sometimes we're so used to being so busy that just to take some time off makes us feel guilty. Well, there's so much to do. There's so much to take care of. Well, then you're living too busy of a life. You should be able to take one day a week, as the Bible commands, work seven days and on the, or six days and on the seven-day rest. Take a Sabbath. Take time to rest. And, I, and I, you know, I'm speaking to myself on this because... I'm leading a church in Grand Terrace, been doing that for 10 years. I'm involved in this church planting movement in Los Angeles where we're planting churches all over the city of LA and I'm out there every day of the week and then I just finished a degree at the Master's College. I mean, I've been massively busy and now things are beginning to slow down because why? We need to take time. If not, we get overworked and we're striving and that's a waste. One pastor put it this way, we live in such a hurried age with little sense of stillness and rest. There's so, there's so, uh, there's, so much motion yet so little progress we work harder to achieve less we're a generation of hyperactive overgrown kids who stay perpetually hyped up on caffeine sugar and tv our motto is get on the bus or get out of the way life for most of us is a mosquito swarm of impending duties we measure our success by how much we accomplish each day we wonder why we're restless edgy tense nervous and easily distracted We talk but have nothing to say, and we listen without hearing a word. USA Today published the results of the following Hilton survey. The percentage of Americans who say they need a long vacation, 67%. Those who feel stressed out often, 66%. Those who feel time is constantly crunched, 60%. Those who want less work and more play, 51%. Those who feel pressured to succeed, 49%. Those who feel overwhelmed often, 48%. I read those and I get tired just reading them because we're so overwhelmed. But why do we feel this way? Why are we so busy as people? Why do we feel like we have to accomplish so much? Why is it that way? Like the guy that was always late for his dentist appointment and he called up one time and said, I want to confirm my appointment. I want to let you know I'm going to be 15 minutes late. Will that be a problem? They said, no, it won't be a problem. We just won't have time to give you the anesthetic. That's all. And he showed up on time. Ann Croker writes, America is the land of the high-achieving, multitasking, speedaholics. We're in perpetual motion, never resting, and never quite satisfied. American families are sucked into the vortex of activities and obligations. We pile on appointments, lessons, practices, games, performances, clubs, and then we shovel in fast food. Western civilization's high-speed, fast-paced, goal-oriented life has propelled us into a state of what Ann Croker columnist says, are called the minivan mania. We're just zipping all over from place to place. On the top list of the top 10 family issues of Family Magazine, number three main issue was busyness. Participation in so many activities that they crowd out quality family time. The immediate takes precedence over the important, and the urgent crowds out the necessary. And John Ottenberg warned us, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. Hurry can destroy our souls. Hurry can keep us from living well. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it's that we become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we settle for a mediocre version of our faith. In other words, we never quite get it. We need to live a quiet life so that we can really take time to listen to God. You know, a person that's so busy can't take time to listen. We need a quiet life so that we can know God better. And listen, the world is striving on the rat race, and they're on the wheel like everyone else. And when we join in right beside them, they look at us and go, you're just like me. You're trying to get all that you can out of this life. And and they look at that and they go, where's the peace? And yet when they find a Christian who is trusting God, who's not in the rat race, who's living quietly, that is attractive to them, and it draws them in. That's why Paul says, number one, if you want to attract the outsider, you want to be a good example to them, number one, love abundantly. Number two, live quietly. And number three, he says, leave unrighteous piety. He says there, verse 11, aspire to live a quiet life and to mind your own business. Hey, there's a verse to quote, right? That's one you might want to use every once in a while. Hey, you know what? Mind your own business. The Bible says it right here. Mind your own business. See, one way we can live a quiet life is to simply Mind our own business and stop meddling in the affairs of everyone else's business. So that's the problem we have. One thing that keeps people busy all the time is they love to get caught up in all the drama and all the issues and all the circumstances of other people's lives. And it leads them to start gossiping and being overly concerned with what other people are doing in their lives. And you know what's really made that easy today? Social media. We can go on Facebook right now and you can watch a journalistic view of somebody's life, where they ate dinner last night, where they're going to eat lunch today, what they got going on in their life, and they put it out there for all to see. And so we look at that, and we can get caught up in the affairs of other. Well, I wonder what they're doing today, and going on people's Facebook pages, or their Instagrams, and, and we have this, this journal of their life. And so it's real easy today to become what the Bible calls a busybody. You know, it's, that's meddling in other people's stuff. And, oh, did you hear what so-and-so is doing right now? And, and we can get involved in all these people's lives so easily. And you know what's amazing is the things that people post on their Facebook page. You know, I'm watching this thinking, I thought they were a committed follower. And they're doing that? I mean, come on, you know, and you could see these things. And people put it out thinking, man, you got to be a little more cautious what you put out there because sometimes it's pretty sinful stuff. And the reason I call this leaving unrighteous piety is piety is this attitude of reverence this attitude of holiness and, and being a religious person and there's nothing wrong with that but what happens is we often become unrighteous in our piety and that is we we become kind of showy and, and, and remember jesus told the the pharisees don't pray in front of everybody they see your you know think that you're boasting about your prayer don't don't let people see what you're giving right because piety can easily turn into self-righteousness and turn into judgmental character and attitudes and today because we have this issue of everybody kind of litting their private lives out in the open where everyone to see it's easy for some of us to look at what people are doing and either begin to get involved in their lives and oh wow look what they got going on and we can start kind of meddling in things we shouldn't be or we can become self righteous and a little judgmental start looking down our nose and we can find ourselves way too consumed with the life of other people even to the point where we're being judgmental. And you know what happens is, is we feel like, well, if they put it out there on Facebook, that's public. Everybody's allowed to read it. So what's so wrong about spreading it around to everybody? Because after all, they could just go to their Facebook page and see it themselves. And so we justify our ability to be able to gossip and share and, and to be involved in people's lives. And, and, and yes, it's true. The Bible does say if you see somebody in error, that you who are spiritual should go and seek to restore them. And that's a, you know, a follower of Christ that, that is erring, and we should do that. But we've got to be careful that we don't become self-righteous and pious to the point where we're beginning to play God or Holy Spirit in the life of others, the Bible says that each one of us will stand before God and give an account of the things that we've done, and each one of us are responsible for what we do in our own body, and we're not responsible for what the other person does in their body. And so there's a really delicate balance to be able to play where I'm trying to help you along, but at the same time, I'm not trying to meddle and be a busybody in your affairs. And that's what was happening, no doubt, here With the Thessalonians. Again, some of them weren't working, and so now they were idle, and because they were idle, they had all this time to meddle in others' affairs. Again, there's a balance between the proper concern and at the same time neglecting my own affairs because I'm all involved in the affairs of others. Somebody once put it this way you cannot faithfully accomplish all of your own responsibilities in life if you're involved in everyone else's life. Some people become so consumed with what others are doing or not doing and so desirous to set them straight that they're not living a quiet life. They're living a life of a busybody. F.F. F. Bruce put it this way there's a great difference between the Christian's duty of putting the interests of others first and busybody's compulsive itch to put other people right. And you see, that's what happens. And that's that leaving of piety that we need to do is not start looking down our nose at everybody and feel like somehow I have the right to begin to correct every wrong in your life. I mean wouldn't it be great if we didn't have busybodies? Wouldn't it be great if everyone just minded their own business? I believe the more we get more we can get accomplished if we just focus on our own issues and let God deal with the issues of others and maybe just pray for those folks. Because God actually tells us right here to mind your own business. Why? Because there's too many busybodies meddling in the affairs of others. And I've discovered personally that most busybodies are very critical. They, they, they criticize, they gossip, they judge, and they meddle in people's business to the point where they're looking for the splinters in other people's eyes when they have a log sticking out of their own eye. And that's why we need to be careful not to become too pious or too self-righteous. And since um, you're not God, you don't know what's going on in that person's life, so we've got to be careful that we're not playing God in other people's lives, and listen. This is why I bring this up. And this is why I believe Paul brings this up. Is one of the greatest turnoffs to those on the outside, unchurched, unbelievers, is is, is as just as they were to Jesus. Is the self righteous, pious, cocky, judgmental, rebuking believers. Remember the Pharisees? Jesus had the most harshest words for the Pharisees. Why? Because they were sinning themselves. They had the logs in their own eyes, but yet they were trying to pick splinters out of others. And he says that's what made him angry. When Jesus overturned the tables, it was the self-righteous Pharisees that Jesus was angry at. And let me tell you something. An unbeliever who watches a Christian become a Pharisee, that's going to drive them far away from the church. What they want to see is people who love one another and who accept one another and who are willing to help one another, right? And so that's why Paul lays it out here. Do not meddle in others' affairs. Leave your piety. And then lastly, he says, instead, labor diligently. Look at verse 11. He says, mind your own business and work with your own hands as we commanded you. Instead of being a busybody, be busy with your body working. And this literally meant work, get a job and don't live off the other Christians. Because remember, they, they, they quit their jobs, charged up their credit cards, and stopped paying their bills. And then they were running out of money. So they started mooching and becoming a weight to the other Christians and expected everybody to kind of, you know, cover their bill. And he said, no, no, don't do that. Be busy with your body. Get a job. In fact, this issue came to a full head by the time Paul wrote Second Thessalonians. That's why he says there, if you don't work, you don't eat. So go get a job, work, pay for your food, Pay for your meals and be a good worker, because there's no better way as we await the return of Christ to be a witness to others than that you are a great worker in the job that God has given you. Warren we put it this way: he "Said idle people spend their time interfering with the affairs of others and getting themselves and others into trouble. When we hear that some among you are idle, they're not busy; instead, they're busy bodies." But let none of you suffer as a busybody in other man's matters. Believers who are about their father's business do not have time or desire to meddle in the affairs of others. Instead, work. And that's what he says in verse 11. It means to labor or engage in activity that involves effort. And it's the opposite of inactivity or idleness. See, idleness leads to sin. and, uh, And inactivity can lead to sin as well. Being busy keeps you away from sin and keeps you from being idle. But wait a minute, Pastor, you just said a few minutes ago that we shouldn't be busy, we should be able to rest, and now you're saying we should labor diligently. Certainly, there's a balance. It's a difference between idleness and resting. Well, where does it land? Somewhere in the middle is where it lands, right? We shouldn't always be idle, and we shouldn't always be resting, and at the same time, we shouldn't always be busy. That's why the Bible lays it out. Six days you shall work, on the seventh you shall rest. We should take a day to rest, but we should be laborious For the other six days, laboring and serving and working, because if you don't work, you don't eat. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says it this way. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he might have something to share with him who has need. What's Paul writing in Ephesians? He's talking about the way a Christian should live their lives. Put off the old man and then put on the new man. And here's the old man put away stealing and the new man work and labor. Why? So that you have something to give and you're not just a taker, you're a giver. And what a difference that will be to an unchurched person that you are a giver and not a taker. See, somebody once said, you will win the respect of outsiders. On the negative side, don't be lazy and give the church a black eye. On the positive side, you can make the church a beautiful place by the way you do your job. Remember, you're the only Bible that some people will ever read, and the lowliest occupation becomes the most powerful sermon when it's done with dignity, propriety, honesty, and diligence. So when it comes to being a witness to those on the outside and living properly, number one, we need to love abundantly. You need to love one another. In fact, today as you leave, I encourage you to love each other tangibly. Maybe there's somebody in this room right now that needs some help and you have the ability to do it. The Bible says if you see a brother in need and do nothing to help him, how does the love of God abide in you, right? So we're to help each other. Number two, we are to live quietly. Maybe there's some things in your life you need to cut loose, man. You got so much going on. You have no time for church, no time for midweek Bible study, no time for things that God would have you to do because you're so busy running the rat race. You're the little mouse in the wheel. As somebody once said, where does the mouse get after 9,000 hours in the wheel? Nowhere. He's in the same place he started, and that's where you'll be. Or maybe you need to leave piety. Maybe you need to stop meddling in other people's business, and you need to live quietly and let God deal with them. Or maybe there's somebody you do need to talk to. But just find the balance between the two, and then finally labor diligently, working with your hands, that you might have something to give. I mean, if we did this, if we all said, Okay, Pastor, great, great instruction today. Let's go do it. Imagine the impact that we could have next week in our jobs, in our neighborhood, in our families, at Christmas coming up in a few weeks, at the parties and the work parties you're going to be having over the next month. What an incredible impact that you might see people literally coming in the doors of this church because of your light, your witness. And rather than being pushed away, they who are outside now would come inside and be a part of our family with us. Wouldn't you want that? Do you want to be a witness for Christ? Do you want others to come into his kingdom? Then Paul lays it out here. This is how we are to conduct ourselves. Here's how we're to be a witness. And I pray that God give us the strength to do that this week. Amen.